Well, thank you everyone for your very warm wishes. Easter Day, my last Sunday, what was I going to speak about? I was not brought up going to church. What's more, I was sure that Christians were wrong and that Christianity could not be true. But nevertheless, I was not an atheist. I believe there was some kind of supernatural reality. Otherwise, why did people have a passion for beauty, for kindness, for justice, for love? I knew there was something more. I suppose I was a bit like some of these modern cosmologists who can see that the observable universe cannot be explained unless there's a great deal more mass than we can see with our telescopes. And they call this invisible material or mass dark matter. For me, the supernatural was some kind of dark matter or dark force, probably impersonal, if personal, then certainly malicious, ultimately unknowable, but definitely there. But I was still sure the Bible was wrong about it. But I had a longing for hope and for a sense of future. And I think all human beings have that. When you think of some of the most popular pop songs, I mean, when you think of Christmas, I know it's Easter, but there wouldn't be Easter if there hadn't been Christmas. So here it is, Merry Christmas. Everybody's having fun. Look to the future now. It's only just begun. Friends, that is what Christians call eschatology. Right? It's to do with a vision of the future, the fact that the whole universe has some purpose. Look to the future now. It's only just begun. Then when I was about 17, I, really, I actually got to know some real Christians. Now, Christians are not perfect. But as I saw these Christians, and I saw them doing stuff like running food banks and stuff like this, I began to think that the world would be a better place if there were more people like them. And I began to be opened up to the idea that maybe this supernatural was a person, not just dark force. And then these Christians invited me along to a talk. It was actually on the 30th of March, 1976, so just over 42 years ago. And the speaker explained the evidence for the resurrection. And the light of reason persuaded me that Christ could very well be God in the flesh. And although I had many objections, I knew that if there was a God, I would like to connect with him. And so I made a very um, fumbling and rather unhumble prayer, and I said I would follow him for three weeks to try him out. And 42 years later, I'm still following, and I don't regret it. Now, one of the main themes of the whole Bible is connection with God. And whereas normally we would preach here, I would preach from one short section of the Bible and feel very comfortable with that today, I felt, feel led to follow one thread through the whole Bible. So it's going to be a little bit of a trolley dash through the Bible with one particular theme. Because events, I think, like the resurrection, make more sense if we know what's happened before and our lives are more meaningful when we know what's coming up ahead. So, for example, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Star Wars, surely everyone has seen Star Wars by now, um, uh, but if you if block your ears, if you haven't, and you don't want to, to have the story spoiled, you know there's this famous episode, it's a, it's a culturally recognised event, when Darth Vader says to young Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. <laughs> Luke replies, he told me enough, he told me you killed him. 
Vader. No, I am your father. It's not that good. Now, this is obviously dramatic, but it's so much more dramatic if you've followed the context of the film and you've understood what's happening and the history of it. And you know, when you know the whole story, we have so much better an understanding of Jesus. We have so much better an understanding of Good Friday and why he died, of Christmas, but also of the resurrection and what that was all about. Without this, we're people, we're like people. Imagine I was going to give you a book. This is a little children's book. I said, look, I want to give you this book, but I know that reading is quite difficult, so what I'm just going to do is tear the pages out of the middle here, right? I'm just, I'm just going to give you the middle pages and we'll throw the rest away. And that's so often what we do with life. We live in the middle. We don't live at the beginning of the universe. We don't live at the end. We live in the middle. And we, it's as if we ignore the beginning and the end and just live as if the middle's all that counts. But friends, if you don't know the beginning and you don't know the end, the middle makes no sense. So there are four big elements in the story of the universe according to God. There's a slide. There's the creation, the crash, the cross, and then the recreation. That's the big, those are the big kind of, kind of sections of the story according to what the Bible teaches us. And uh, in anticipation of this recreation, we can say with those Occupy protesters, the beginning is near. Right? The beginning is near. In the New Testament, they took the slogans of the politicians of their day and made them. Right? The word gospel was actually a slogan of the Imperial Roman Empire. And this was an Occupy protest um, uh, statement. The beginning is near, but if I want to tell you it is true uh, for, with the Christian story. So I want to begin by talking about this creation and talking about thin places. Maybe all cultures have identified thin places, places where the separation between the natural and the supernatural is at a minimum. These are places where heaven connects to earth, if you want to use that kind of language, and Christians do. Traditionally, people have often identified mountains as being thin places. And also, traditionally, people have erected buildings at these thin places, buildings we often call temples. Now, this theme of thin places, of temples where heaven meets earth, is a theme that runs right through Scripture. All ancient people, I want to tell you, who read the opening chapters of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, would see in those opening chapters the creation of a temple. You say, really? Yes, actually this is true. And the final step of the inauguration of any temple is the installation of the image of the deity to whom the temple is devoted. And that is exactly what we find in the first chapters of the book of Genesis. The image installed is none other than Adam and Eve, made in the image of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And so we read in Genesis 2, verse 8 and verse 15. It's on the slide, Peter. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The garden of Eden in this temple creation was the most holy place in this temple. The temple was, as it were, the whole planet and was the place where this universe was connected 
with the God who had created all things. It was in that garden that the Lord their God would walk with them in the cool of the evening. In other words, this supernatural spirit being we call God has always, according to the Bible, wanted to walk with human beings, to honor our creatureliness, to connect with us by walking with us. Surely, I hope all of you have experienced those times when you're having a meal with dear old friends, friends that you know love you and, and have a care for how your life turns out and how your children turn out and who you care for them as well. And you share together your hopes and dreams and you chat and you, you wish the evening wouldn't end and it would go on and on. This was what it was like for Adam and Eve walking in the garden. But additionally, one of the things we find about the temples in the Bible is that God always wants to reach beyond the temple with blessing. Just as we've been hearing about with Food Bank, or last week we were having Sign Up Sunday, and there were lots of sheets out about different activities and projects this church does, many of which touch out into the community, or ways we serve as school governors or other ways out in the community to be a blessing. And so we read about this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 to 14. We read that a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And then the, three, the four rivers are named. And I'm following a thread here, so you're going to see these, the, the rivers come up again and again in the Bible, because it's in the heart of God. Not just that there would be a connection between us and heaven, but from that connection flows a river that brings life. And that river is still flowing, dear friends. And it flows above all from the cross and the resurrection when uh, life finally defeated death. So in summary, the universe God, just of this first section, the universe God made was good, it was very good. The whole universe, as it were, the place of which connects with God. And the earth was God's temple, where God placed beings made in his image. God placed these image bearers, Adam and Eve, in the world as his representatives on earth. They were his viceroys, his assistant rulers. So this whole universe was his kingdom. And humanity had a priestly role connecting the earth with God's presence, a role which we have lost but which we are being restored to in Christ. And God's call upon Adam and Eve was that they would rule the earth kindly in his name, and the earth would be God's dwelling place. So this was episode one of the creation, but episode two was the moment things went wrong, what we call the fall or the crash, as we have on the next slide, just reminding you, the crash. And Adam and Eve jeopardized this whole plan because they lost faith in God and they put their confidence in what God's enemy said, the serpent. I'm sure you've heard this story. The consequences for Adam and Eve and for the earth were tragic. Adam failed. They were expelled from God's presence. Their commission to be priests connecting earth and heaven, connecting creation and creator, was aborted. God's plan that the earth would be like the city of God, a place where humanity and God dwell together, was broken before it had hardly begun. And that's because the one you obey becomes your master. It's a spiritual principle. The one you obey becomes your master. And Adam and Eve had obeyed Satan's suggestions, so he became their master. They had abandoned their created role as image bearers of Yahweh representing the deity. Evil had arrived. God's presence thereafter became associated only with heaven and no longer with earth. And you reap what you sow, and the choice that Adam and Eve made had major consequences for them the separation of heaven and earth. And that's why I know before I was a Christian, I had a vague sense of the supernatural. I could rationally deduct, but I had no sense of connection with God. But after I became a Christian, do you remember I said I prayed that prayer, I'll follow you for three weeks. 
you, I, I didn't think about it three weeks later because after I made that prayer, God made a connection with me and I've lived with that connection ever since, apart from one episode which I won't tell you about this morning. I don't have time. But we do reap what we sow. You know, recently there was a, last autumn was it, there was a drunk driver in West London crashed into three teenage boys and they were all killed. Do you remember that story? Recently they've had the trial and he was sent to prison. But if they'd had a trial and instead they gave him a million pounds, what would you think of that? Wouldn't you be outraged? You should be. And it was the same with Adam and Eve. They'd walked away from their creator and so there was a consequence to that. And, um, and, and they were barred from his presence. And the Bible is clear with respect to the earth that it belongs to God. And yet we're told, as it says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And yet it also says in Scripture, in 1 John 5:19, for example, this is in the New Testament, the Apostle John, we know that we are children of God and we know this, that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That is the consequence of what Adam and Eve did. And that's why we see so much evil in the world today. That's why nearly every phone call you get on your landline is from somebody trying to scam you. Right? That's why there's so much domestic violence. That's why there are so many stabbings taking place in our country. That's why there are these terrible acid attacks. That's why there's wars and rumours of war. That's why there's domestic violence, why there is so much a sexual oppression of women. That's why it just goes on and on, dear friends. We, like to, we don't want to dwell on these things all the time. But I want to tell you, the evidence is there that the Bible account of how things are is an accurate account. And once I started to read the Bible, I realized what I had ignored for all those years gave the truest account of the reality I see in this world. So this turn of events was no surprise to God when Adam and Eve failed. It was a big disappointment, mind you. But there was already a plan to overcome these arguments, these obstacles. We find teasers about that plan even in the book of Genesis where we read in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. He made garments of skin. Do you, do you understand what that means? That means an animal died. A lamb was slain so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. And again, that's a theme that we'll just keep repeating through the Bible. And God made this prediction straight away to the serpent, Satan, in Genesis 3 as well, verses 14 to 15, uh, that God's... Isn't this interesting? This is somebody trying to phone in. <laughs> Can you just grab... The phone's underneath the counter there if you want to grab it. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you've done this, uh, you know, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Her offspring is Jesus Christ. Right? The enmity that Jesus Christ ultimately became the fulfillment of this prophecy. Right at the beginning it was prophesied there would be the seed of a woman, one born of a woman who would defeat Satan. And indeed there was one. And on Easter Day, we celebrate his final victory over Satan. So what was God's plan then? It was the cross, going back to the graphic here. It is the cross. The plan involved God taking, himself, taking on himself humanity and becoming one of the rebel race. The Bible is the story of how God reestablishes his residency on earth, how he brings heaven, his presence back to earth. It describes how God undoes the rebellion and reestablishes his rule through his chosen king, Jesus. Jesus is successful where Adam failed. And to prepare, to prepare for this mission, 
We have the long period, the many, the couple of thousand years of the Old Testament era, when the Father set in motion a plan to choose one tribe from the race of men to use as his instrument to bless mankind. So, particularly, we think of when he came to Abraham about 2000 BC and called Abraham and gave promises to Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And then he was working with the Jewish people for that 2,000 years, giving them insights into what God was really like, what God's heart was really like. Because so many people think that God is against them and that God is wanting to destroy them when God is actually filled with love towards us. And so, above all, one of the key revelations that God was bringing to those ancient Israelites was that there was, is just one God, because all ancient peoples believed in multiple gods. And, and you might say, oh, that's so obvious. Yes, it's obvious to you. But actually, it, was not, it took hundreds of years for the Jewish people to become convinced, yes, there is only one God. And so profound is that revelation, and so widespread is it now, that even atheists believe that if there is a God, there would only be one of them. Right? That's how profound that revelation and how widespread it's become. But that was a novelty then, and yet it was very important. And God made great promises to Abraham. He says to him, I will make you, Genesis 12, I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We see God's desire to, this is priestly language, isn't it? It's, it's Abraham being told, look, what I intended for Adam and Eve, I want you to start to fulfill. I want you to be a priest bringing God's blessing to the people. And not just to your own people, but to all the nations of the world. And so this promise is to be fulfilled. And so there was this sense of God's presence. And then a great character in the Old Testament, Moses. Uh, and at that time, God's presence was with the people. This is about, 1200, about 1300 B.C., late 1200s B.C. The, the people had, were brought out of Egypt, a great story. You might have seen the Prince of Egypt film. And we get a very crucial point where Moses prays to God. And Moses says to the Lord in Exodus 33, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you've found favor with me. Well, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. What a great prayer he makes. What a great prayer, a great prayer for any one of you to make. And the Lord replied, what a wonderful reply, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then, then Moses said to him, well, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Do you see how important God's presence is? I hope you will have a hunger for God's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. Wouldn't you like to hear God say that to you? Because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Friends, God wants to, in Christ, God is pleased with us. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Right? When you ask for God's glory, you're asking for his goodness. For his good, because goodness is the chief characteristic of our God. And so he goes on. But he, verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. There's still this problem 
of, of sin. And so subsequently Moses was instructed to build a, a tent. The tent was a sort of portable temple. And in the tent was the Ark of the Covenant. Now it's been made famous by one professor, Indiana Jones, who, who was on a search to find this Ark of the Covenant. And um, uh, because God knew that his full presence would kill people, just like he told Moses, because he's so utterly just and perfect and truthful and loving and holy. And, but he loves people. He didn't want to destroy them. He wanted to be close to human beings. He didn't want to destroy us. And so he, he, he created, got them to build this tent, and in the heart of the tent there was a smaller tent, the Holy of Holies. And in the tent they, they made this box, and in it were the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments and some other stuff. And it had a gold lid called the Mercy Seat. And this was, as it were, the place where God's presence was. And it was so powerful there that when Moses came out from meeting with God, his face glowed so brightly that the people couldn't look him in the face. And so he used to wear a veil so they couldn't see the shining glory. And they approached God, though, through the shedding of blood. Lambs had to die so that they could approach God without being judged. And... Um, and so it was just another step along the way of God bringing his presence back into the earth. And like with the Garden of Eden that was guarded by cherubim once Adam and Eve had been thrown out, the mercy seat had cherubim on it, guarding it, saying, watch out, this is dangerous, God's wonderful presence is here. Um, and so the story goes on. Subsequently, Solomon, about 1,000 BC, King Solomon replaced the tent with a stone temple and when he inaugurated it, the glory of God fell. It was so powerful, the people couldn't even stand up. So, uh, but the people didn't really stay faithful to God. They went into exile. The story goes on. Uh, and then Ezekiel, a few weeks ago, Felix here preached from Ezekiel 47. The prophets were given visions of a new temple. And, um, and so we read for verse 47, sorry, chapter 47, verse 1. The man brought me to the entrance of this temple. It was all seen in a vision. I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. Here's the river again. Yep, the river. The water coming down, etc. Verse 6, Son of man, do you see this? He led me back to the bank of the river. I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fruit trees of every kind. There's, there's life. There's a river. Do you see the theme repeating again? And then several more centuries pass, and you're saying, Andrew, why are you telling me all of this? Remind me, history is so boring. Why are we looking at this? Friends, the way, the story you see yourself in controls everything. You know, whether you voted Brexit or Remain will be to do with the story you told, you, you have, of Britain's place in the world. Right? The, the, the story you tell is incredibly important. Or, or, or coming down to a very tiny thing. When I was between about six or ten years of, old, of age, we lived in Chelmsford or Ingatestone, then Chelmsford. And on many summer weekends, we used to be taken to feed the dragons. And this involved cutting the grass and emptying all the cuttings into a sheet in the boot of my dad's car. It turns out that although dragons breathe fire, they are herbivores, right? And um, the whole family would get into the car and we'd go for a drive into the countryside. And at some random point, my dad would pull over on a country lane and we'd empty the grass cuttings on the verge to feed the dragons, right? Now, it was only much later in life that I discovered that the technical term for this activity is fly-tipping. And um, 
But the story changes everything. The story you put around it changes everything. You know, most crimes make perfect sense to the person who commit them within the story they are telling themselves. The domestic abuse, the stabbing, it all fits with the story. It's absolutely important which story you choose to live by, which narrative you see your life positioned within, because you will make dreadful shipwreck of your life, but if you can choose the story that is the true account of this universe, your life will have meaning, and you'll become a very productive, helpful person in, in your life. So it's vital to choose the right one. So in the fullness of time, the preparations were complete in the timescales of human history, and God the Son was born, as predicted, as a baby in Bethlehem. Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, connection, presence. You see, it's coming through. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Such rich things to be explored here. And so Jesus establishes a new way of being his people in the earth and promises us to be a blessing. And the temple theme is found here as well because Jesus said of himself, Matthew 12, 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here, and he was referring to himself. Or John chapter 2, um, Jesus was near the temple at the time of Jesus' life. Herod the Great was actually building a temple. It was still under construction. It had already been 46 years under construction, and it wasn't going to be finished for quite a few years after Jesus had been crucified. And he's there, and the Jews, it says, we read in verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And they replied, what? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? They didn't get what he was saying. He was saying that the temple he had spoken of was his body. Because Jesus was self-consciously saying to the Jewish people, look, you thought you must go to the temple to get forgiveness, to get healing, to find the presence of God. But I want to tell you, no more. From now on, come to me and you can receive forgiveness. You can receive healing and you can find God's presence. And so one day, Jesus was actually at the temple for one of the Jewish festivals, the Festival of Tabernacles. During this festival, they used to go down to a pond. They would fill a flagon with the water from the pond. They would process up to the temple, which is on the top of a mountain. They would pour the water out on the, t on the altar. And they would do this in remembrance of the prophecy Ezekiel had made and the, uh, and the, 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 the many water themes that come through the Bible. And on that day, verse 37 of John 7, the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Friends, do you see how these things are coming together in Christ and coming to focus on him? And so the Bible concludes, the last part of this story is the recreation. Now this last month has brought the sad news of the death of Professor Stephen Hawking although he lived immensely longer than the medics originally predicted with the sort of condition that he suffered from. But among the many articles posted in the wake of the news of his death, 
was one article on the BBC outlining some of Hawking's predictions for the future. They are not optimistic. Hawking's view of the future included expecting the development of full artificial intelligence, which could spell the end of the human race. He was very wary about AI. He predicted global warming that would make the Earth like Venus with the temperature of 250 degrees and raining sulfuric acid. That would make your weather forecast interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, and he said the near certainty in the next 1,000 or 10,000 years of a large asteroid hitting the Earth and an alien visitation, which would be much as when Columbus landed in America, which didn't turn out well for the, North Amer North American, the Native Americans. <laughs> Let's read what the Bible says is going to happen in the future. We've been singing about it in the songs. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is right at the end of the Bible now, a vision of the Apostle John. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Yes, there's lots of metaphor in here, but actually this is the same, same theme being picked up. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Right, at last, heaven is being restored to earth fully and finally. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There will be no more stabbings and there will be no more sexual abuse and there will be no more lying and thieving and dishonesty. There will be no more betrayal. There will be no more of all this rubbish that we have to live with in the world today. For the old order of things has passed away. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Just to confirm what we said. And then verse, chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. What do you know? Here it is again. As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Linking you right back to the beginning of Genesis. Right. Only this time we have free access to the tree of life. Because that tree of life is the cross. Christ was crucified on a tree. So that we could enjoy this life. Friends, that's where the cross fits in, that we can know God. Now, this temple thing can be picked up. We're told that our own bodies are a temple by the Apostle Paul. God comes and lives in us. Isn't that amazing? Do you know that really affects how you live? You know, imagine, maybe you've got a problem with pornography on the Internet. So do you always go and fetch your mother when you're going to go and look at your pornography? Would you do that? Say, Mum, come and, come and watch this. You wouldn't do that, would you? I'm just using this. It's just an illustration. But if Jesus is in you, why would you take him to watch pornography? It's mad. Would you just register these things? God's presence is with me. Suddenly you're raised up above the stupidity of all that rubbish. And you're, you're released into the dignity of what you were meant to be, a representative of God, an image bearer of the living God, to walk tall in the earth and come and bring transformation and justice and kindness and compassion in this world. And then all together as well, as we read in Ephesians 2, we're being built together into a holy temple where God is. The church is not about heritage. It's about the future. The church is not about buildings. It's about people. The church is not about us, it's about the coming kingdom of our glorious risen Lord. So that's why we seek his presence. 
That's why we love him. The best thing the church can do for the world is to be the church, to live out God's story, a story that motivates us to live for others, to live for justice and mercy, to announce new life in him. You can share in that new life today, putting your faith in Jesus Christ. So we'll finish with an Easter reading from 1 Corinthians 15, from verse 45, where we read, it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, right back at Genesis 1. But the last Adam, this is Jesus, our life-giving spirit. Adam, the first Adam, messed up. So God found his own son to be the, set, the last Adam who would succeed. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. We will join in this new creation. We will have a new resurrection body like his. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, verse 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, in other words, die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must, must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, those you who follow in this faith, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Band, do come up. Let's sing that song again. I cast my mind to Calvary. So as they come up, to invite you to stand. As Christians, we have this rich heritage stretching back. And we have this rich hope that evil and suffering will not continue forever. I believe that in your heart of hearts you know that evil and suffering is wrong, that it's not right, it shouldn't be in the universe. And I want to tell you that that instinct is absolutely right. It was put there by God. Because actually you were made by God. And you were made for a world that is not polluted with evil and suffering. And in Christ, God's announced an amnesty. And he's saying to all us rebel creatures, come back to me. Be restored in my presence. Take up again that wonderful role of being my image bearers, of having me in your life. 
and then the adventure of doing miracles with me, like, like we were hearing about for the food bank and countless other things. It's such an adventure walking with God. It takes great courage. It will demand everything of you. You think of this, so many people have been heroes down the centuries, made a total difference, abolished slavery. That was done by Christians. Set up hospitals across the world. Christians took a lead in that. Set up schools and education. It was Christians who took a lead in that. Our modern culture tries to rub out these truths, but that is actually the truth. The fact that we esteem such things is because of the influence of Christianity upon this world. But God actually wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. And that's our invitation today.